Carmen Maria Machado is the author of the best-selling memoir, In the Dream House, in the award-winning short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. She's been a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the Bard Fiction Prize, the Lambda Literary Award for Lesbian Fiction, the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Nonfiction, the Brooklyn Public Library Literature Prize, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. In 2018, the New York Times listed her body and other parties as a member of the New Vanguard, one of 15 remarkable books by women that are shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. When I first encountered your work, it was being presented among a panel of National Book Award nominations. Subsequently, encountered it a lot when people were talking about the growth of speculative fiction in contemporary literature. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about what speculative fiction means to you and why you think it's having a literary moment. Oh, I think obviously there's like a genre world and a lit world. And sometimes they exist sort of in different traditions and they have different between them in terms of communities. But, you know, I think there's always been sort of genre bendy work that has always overlapped with communities. And I feel like people used to be kind of intense and sort of weird about snobbery, <laughs> you know, like sort of surrounding the conversation, but actually, I feel like that has not been true for a while now. I just sort of write what I want to write. I write what speaks to me, what means something to me. And I think when people talk about speculative fiction, at least the way that I've heard it described, is usually in kind of an adjacent way to sci-fi or fantasy or magical realist traditions. If they're all neighboring areas of fiction, do you know where you might place yourself or, or what you seem to be most interested in? Yeah, people ask me this a lot. I mean, I feel like a magical realism, people use that word to describe me a lot. And magical mm -hmm. realism, I think, is actually a super specific tradition, you know, that originates in South America and has a connection to colonialism. And it has a very certain sort of history that I feel like is not necessarily true for me. So I would say I write liminal fantasy. I'd say I write surrealist work. I'd say I write literary fiction. I'd say I write horror. I feel like horror is probably the genre that speaks to me the most. I'd say horror is the genre that I, I guess, feel the most affinity towards nowadays. How would you define the horror genre? I would say, depending on the subgenre, they have lots of different rules. So it's it's not quite like other genres, you know, because there's certain genres where the, the nature of the genre is that there are certain rules, not expectations the readers can have. And with horror, it really depends on like, is it a ghost story? Is it a demonic possession story? Is it like a serial killer story or home invasion or folk horror or whatever? But on the other hand, I think there is sort of a sense of structure that horror possesses, a sort of uneasiness, sort of tapping into certain fear or viscerality, the use of shock and surprise and disgust and unease and the uncanny, a sense of tension, which could also be used to apply to like thrillers or whatever. But I feel like the tension is also the creation of suspense and sort of the constant sort of mm -hmm. like tightening of that, of that vibe is part of it as well. I feel like something that delights most readers of your work is that it seems to defy a lot of our expectations. I mean, horror is such an interesting genre because we, we think of it, you know, we think of it as a sort of more niche thing or, or in a certain tradition. But, you know, Shirley Jackson is one of our greatest 20th century American writers. And she was a horror writer, you know, because that was part of her project. And I think that sometimes it becomes about labels or what people want to call themselves. I just very comfortable saying that I'm a horror writer. And also I feel like horror to me is the most exciting genre in the world right mm -hmm. now. I feel like... Such good work is coming out of that genre in a way that almost it's not coming out of any other. And I think that's really exciting. 
who are some other horror writers that you're reading right now? So I'm in this weird place. People keep asking me this because I just finished a memoir. I've actually been mm-hmm. reading a lot of nonfiction because I've been like just on a nonfiction kick for a while. And I've been funny because I taught a haunted house class this past spring at Penn where I teach. And so we read Beloved and we read House Next Door by Anne River Seddons and we read Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and a bunch of stuff about like gentrification and home buying and mm-hmm. some legal stuff, like all kinds of really, really interesting material, huh. short stories and essays and articles and everything. So I feel like that was my last big sort of burst of horror, but there was all stuff that I already read before. None of that was new to me. I guess I'm getting, well, I'm not reading horror right now, but I am reading this really incredible, gorgeous thriller right now by Liz Moore, mm-hmm. Long Bright River, which I would not call it horror at all, but it, in terms of that beauty and that tension and that fear, it's like quite, it's quite an extraordinary book. Writers that I've been really excited about in the last year have been like Brian Evenson, Victor Laval, Alyssa Wong is a writer that I really love who writes some really good horror. You mentioned that you were teaching your writer in residence at Penn right now, and then you're going to be instructing at the Tin House Summer Workshops, is that right? Actually, I just, unfortunately, I'm not. I do have a surgery I have to do, and it's going to interfere. Mm-hmm. So I actually, unfortunately, am not able to do in-house this year. I guess as an educator and someone who came out of an MFA program, what do you see as the relationship between instruction and mentorship in teaching writing and writing as a craft and as a practice that you engage in personally? Yeah, I mean, I find teaching, I mean, teaching is interesting because it, it does, sort of physically make writing harder in the sense that it's like a thing I have to do in which I'm not writing takes a lot of my time and energy. And so in that way, like teaching is kind of hard, you know, and I think academia is hard on writers in that way and artists, you know, when you have to teach and also like participate in your practice, perform your practice. But on the other hand, you know, I actually really love teaching because when I teach, I have to articulate ideas in very clear ways. And I've definitely like worked through some issues I was having with my own work because I had to articulate very carefully and clearly to a student like something that they had asked about. And I find that very helpful. I think academia, I mean, I went to the MFA program as well. I think the MFA programs can be very useful in the sense that if they're funded and if you're able to like focus on some writing, like it's actually a very exciting thing. You connect with mentors, you, you meet other writers, you work with other writers, you learn how to articulate sort of issues around writing with other people's work, which then helps you talk about your own work or think about your own work critically. And then they also are institutions that like fuck up, you know, institutions <laughs> that that sort of don't do things well the way so many do and yeah, and have all the sort of the, the shortcomings of institutions in terms of like racism and sexism and like all that. Yeah. And so like, I feel like MFAs, they actually come in mind very rewarding, but I think they're complicated and not right for some folks and they're right for some other people. But I did actually really love it, and I do think that they can be very valuable tools. In interviews, you cited Joanna Russ's How to Suppress Women's Writing as a work that really resonated with you because it documented methods by which women's writing was disregarded or made to seem anomalous, et cetera, and clearly showed the power of dominant modes of conversation or record-keeping that served to push what we call marginal experiences to the margins. While I was reading your memoir, it, it struck me that you and Joanna Russ were doing kind of similar activities, that, that you were both showing how experiences that are not necessarily at the forefront of our culture are sometimes purposely or not purposely 
misunderstood by people who document them. And so I was wondering if you were thinking about your work while you're writing sections where you almost seem to serve as a historian. I mean, I feel like, you know, so much of this book is about trying to pull together narrative threads that have not been pulled together before, create a kind of history. And I think what scared me about writing this book was that I worried that I was not sort of sufficiently, I was not a historian, I'm not a historian by trade, Mm -hmm. so that I would be failing in ways that I couldn't even begin to foresee, and that's extremely scary. But I was very inspired by her, like I find her really interesting. I find the way that she sort of talked about creating shared history that people could look back and see where they exist in a tradition is really important. And I quote in the back of the book by a writer about Joanna Russ and talking about how it always feels like our history is written in sand and it's constantly getting erased. And, and that could be right. like women's history or queer history or trans history. You know, where you, like, you just feel like you don't exist in a tradition when in fact you do and you just don't realize it. <sighs> it felt like I was engaging with that in a way, though of course it was scary because like I... I am like, I'm not a historian. I said to somebody, I feel like it's like that scene in Contact where Jodie Foster is like, they should have sent a poet. It's like they should have sent a historian to do this job, you know, and I really want there to be like other books sort of talking about this and thinking about it from other ways and like pulling traditions together in certain ways. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that book has always been really influential to me and I really recommend it to people. Yeah. I have a copy of it and admittedly I haven't finished it, but it just seemed like every single page, there's something that you want to call out and be like, this can't be real. They couldn't have said that. While you were thinking about that and about your role in collecting this information, then, did you consult with any queer historians? It certainly you referenced several texts throughout. Yeah, I read a lot. I mean, I did. I sort of consulted briefly with Lillian Faderman. She's a, a Lillian historian who I'm really interested in. And I have written to her and talked to her about if there were any sort of historical stories about queer DV that she could think of. And she was like, no, actually, which is such a weird, it's weird. She sort of was interested in the fact that she couldn't think of any so I was, I was like, I feel like that maybe is not the way to go. I mean, I wasn't writing a book of journalism. I was like, I'm just going to start reading, see what I can find. So I sort of went more that route. And I feel like as a reader, you get a sense of, I mean, obviously the research that went into it, just even the number of footnotes that were in here. Mm-hmm. Where did you find the book that cited most? The one with all the references to different fables. Oh, 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 the, 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 the folktale, like, the footnotes, the, the Stiff Thompson, blah, 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 blah. It's a very, very long name. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know where that initially came from. I was thinking a lot about fairy tales. Like, I'd obviously written, I'd written about Bluebeard. I had written about a couple of others. And I was like, well... You know, like, I, I, and I was thinking a lot about... I, it's a point I think I saw, like, oh, like, you know... The Goose Girl was another fairy tale that I referenced, and like it fits in this mm-hmm. category in like this taxonomy system that this person created. And I was sort of poking around at taxonomy systems, and then I found that one in particular. The others, you know, are varying lengths, but that one it's literally like a thousand pages long. Like I downloaded a wow. copy, like a PDF of it that I found online, and like, mm-hmm. I, and I, and it had like everything. And so I was like, oh, this actually is like very helpful and interesting, and could be like sort of a way in which I can, the thing about writing about domestic violence is that when you sort of strip away the details, it it repeats itself, like the patterns repeat themselves. And so Mm -hmm. writing a book that's about a thing that fundamentally repeats itself is very hard and like very stressful. Like how do you write, how do you write something interesting and beautiful about a thing that is like so sort of cliche and sort of functions 
on its own trope. And what I found so interesting about the folktale taxonomy is that, it, you know, with the system of organization, the stories, many of which share a common sort of origins or roots or whatever, and the stories that like repeat themselves and sort of morph over time and like over geography. So it just became this really, really, really interesting way of thinking about how you tell a story in a beautiful and meaningful way while it is also operating in this mode of, of a shared narrative or a repeating narrative. So yeah, so I mean, that was our, that's how I eventually ended up using it. Like in the beginning, I was like, this is so cool. This is so interesting. My name is Gabriela Garcia Stolfini, a recent graduate of American University where I majored in communication studies and minored in international relations. Here at The Creative Process, I'm the Social Justice and Community Initiatives podcaster. I first came across Maria Machado's work in my university class called Mental Health and Neuroqueerness, where we discussed various pieces of work regarding marginalized neuroqueer experiences. In the Dream House was my first interaction with Machado's way in magical realism. I found myself in awe of the words that were unfolding in each line of text, as I had never resonated with such thoughts before. So many complex sentiments of abusive relationships and the binds that they lock you in. In one sense, I was taken aback. It almost felt as if she had lived in my brain for a moment and processed my emotions alongside me. Machado seamlessly put my feelings into words, sentences, paragraphs, and pages. And the dream house came to me right when I needed it the most. And again, as I work on Machado's conversation, now with the creative process. Out of the many highlighted passages I marked in the book, I'd like to share with you the one that impacted me the most. Reader, do you remember that ridiculous movie Volcano? The one with Tommy Lee Jones? Do you remember how they stopped eruption in the middle of downtown Los Angeles? They diverted it with cement roadblocks and pointed fire hoses at it and rerouted the lava to the ocean, and everything was fine? Sweet reader, that is not how lava works. Anyone can tell you that. Here is the truth. I keep waiting for my anger to go dormant, but it won't. I keep waiting for someone to reroute my anger into the ocean, but no one can. My heart is closer to Dante's peak of Dante's peak. My anger dissolves grandmas in acid lakes and raises quaint Pacific Northwest towns with ash, and asphyxiates jet engines with its grit. Lava keeps leaking down my slopes. You should have listened to the scientists. You should have evacuated earlier. As Machado explains later on in the book, emotions sometimes take on a life of their own. At times it feels like we are perceiving our emotions outside of ourselves because of how wild and sometimes random they are. When we find ourselves stranded in the middle of the erupting volcano in our minds, it feels like all we can do is wish and wait for someone or something to harden our lava. Reading this specific excerpt had struck something in me. It is often the case that we, as artists and people, tend to see the infinite connections and metaphors between various instances in our lives. Sometimes, the ability to compare your own human emotions to something as wild as lava allows us to perceive our emotions at their accurate magnitude in which they affect us. Machado writes, Putting language to something for which you have no language for is no easy feat, and she could not be more correct. In different art forms, artists attempt to do the same with their brushes, canvases, granite, clay, string, pen, bodies, and voices. It's thanks to artists like Machado that we were able to better understand our own experiences and how they manifest throughout our beings. I mean, personally, I'm a writer, but I'm also a visual artist. So I'm always 
super interested in modes of storytelling that seem to exist between kind of traditional art forms, like comics or visual poetry. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if this is one of the first times that you've considered working in comics or in kind of like a cross-media form. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved like, graphic novels and comics and visual art in general, but I am not myself a visual artist, or I, I, I am an amateur visual artist for my own pleasure purposes, but I am not, I am not an actual right. artist, visual artist. But yeah, DC had reached out to me and been like, we really love your work. Like, I'm interested in writing a horror comic for us. And I actually had some notes for something which I thought was going to be a novel, but I was like, oh, this could really be a comic. And yeah, and so it's because I've never really like considered it or done it. I really am enjoying it. It's really interesting writing scripts. What's the relationship between yourself and the visual team once you're illustrating it? I think it's different. I mean, some collaborative forms, I think if you write like a picture, you have far less control over the illustrations. But like, like it's sort of meant to be more, a little more collaborative. And I was I'm collaborating with my artists and the colorists and everything. But like, I direct everything. I have a little more control over like how I want them to look. And I can sort of give notes and feedback and say, oh, no, I meant I sort of want it more like this or whatever. So I have a great deal of control which is really nice but also it's exciting to have these incredibly talented artists doing shit that I'm just like I never would have thought of that that's amazing it's so beautiful like they're just doing an incredible job I love the amount of appreciation that artists of different forms can give to each other like personally music doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever (laughs) I love music and listening to it I just I know that I can never pick up an instrument without breaking it or something yeah in that same vein in your interview with uh, Cameron Esposito, you were talking about Midsummer, which made me wonder, <laughs> you know, what, I mean, it seems like Midsummer and your work could almost be siblings. Oh, that's very flattering as I've loved that <laughs> movie very much. <laughs> yeah, so I was wondering if there's any work in other media happening right now that might, in your mind, either resonate with your work or just catch those same interests that you're drawn to when you sit it down to the page. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of really good horror coming out right now, like film-wise, that I feel like. I feel like my work is very engaged in or engaged with. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, as you say, like a sibling or like a cousin or something. I think like they're in the same place. I also play a lot of okay. video games, and I'm really interested in certain very narrative-driven video games that also feel in conversation, like Kentucky Route Zero or Gone Home mm-hmm. or Limbo yeah. or any other number of games, really. And I feel like so many visual artists, but like none that I could name, like just ones that I see. Like I, I follow sculpture accounts on Instagram. I'm like really interested in sculpture. I definitely feel that way. I mean, I feel like it's, I, and I get inspired by so many different mediums. Like I feel mm-hmm. like I, you know, artists from across all disciplines are very interesting to me and I really, yeah, I find them very, very inspiring. And One thing I really appreciated about your memoir too is that I feel like you can see that influence. It feels like exploring your story and then broader narratives about queer abusive relationships and this like fractalized viewpoint and certainly paying tribute or at least acknowledging other works or similar things that just layered on top of your experiences at the time yeah in the memoir uh you also wrote about attending the residency at the malay house and in your short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, you also wrote a story called The Residency. So I was wondering if you talk, could talk about uh, your experience with residencies and how they contribute to your writing process or mm-hmm. what you get out of them. 
So I love residencies. I actually find them incredibly helpful. I did two last year for the memoir and it was actually really hard because I, it was very difficult to be in the wilderness alone by myself, which normally is a thing that I would love while writing such difficult material. I really struggled with that. Mm-hmm. And, and that, yeah, that was hard, but I generally find residencies very helpful and useful while also they are like creepy and interesting. And obviously like, I mean, setting a horror story at a residency just seemed like uh, as obvious as any, like, obviously <laughs> that's what, like, how could you not, you know, <laughs> like it's just like a perfect setting for it in every way, shape and form. And so, so yeah. And I, I do a bunch of residencies. Like I write them in a memoir, I write about the Malay colony, I write about Yaddo, I write about the uh, Hedgebrook, I write about a, couple, a bunch, a bunch of others too. The ones from Oregon called Playa that I did. So yeah, so you know, I find I find residencies very helpful and useful because I feel like I get very distracted in my day to day life because I've got like so much stuff going on, and it's really helpful to me just to have open space in front of me so I can work. Especially if you're yeah. teaching as well. I think they're not for everybody. And I also need very certain things out of them. Like when I did the residencies last year, like I wasn't getting fed. Like I had a place to stay, which is like great, obviously. But I realized like, oh, I actually need to be fed like a baby. I don't want to have to like do dishes and like plan meals if I'm like in the middle of the the thing. And I realized that only while I was doing the residency where that was not an option. So, you know, I'm slowly figuring that out. Yeah, no, it's true that caring for yourself takes a certain amount of energy that almost feels like, at least for me, that overlaps with the energy that it would take to write. Totally. And I love cooking. I find cooking very Mm -hmm. relaxing, but like it just became so complicated. And I was just like, oh man, like it's so much energy and so many hours of my night to plan, grocery shop, make the meal, eat it, then clean it up, you know. And by then I'm just like, oh my God, I need to go lie down, you know. I didn't realize that's the thing I needed, but then I realized after that, like, oh, that's actually a really important part of my process. Things you wouldn't think when you're accepted to a residency. I know, right? If you could talk a bit about writing setting and the role of setting in your work, I'm sure... That was something you talked about in your haunted houses writing course. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a person who's very susceptible to settings. I feel like the space that I exist in, and that's why residencies are so helpful for me because it's so isolated and creepy and and surreal. And you know, you're just alone with your thoughts, and you're in the woods, and there's like weird animals outside. It just feels perfect. I'm just very vulnerable to like atmosphere, I guess. And so setting has always been really important to me is definitely for me like a kind of engine that a story can have. And I think I've had stories like President where that is primarily the engine. Um, yeah. Which is interesting too when you think about in the dream house because the setting was, I mean, both literally the house that you were staying at, but then also kind of this, I don't know I hate to ask an author to describe what they were doing because I would hate if someone ever asked me that. So, <laughs> I guess if, if I had to, what do you think that the house represented for you on a more than literal level? I mean, I think I was really interested in the fact that like you could write about a haunted house in a way in where, where the house did not sort of fit into this particular, like it wasn't like a creepy rambling old mansion, you know, it, nobody had died there. It was just a house. It was a very ordinary, relatively modern sort of rundown house. And I think thinking about the house 
and all of it's a sort of accompanying metaphors. I don't know. The ha- it just seems like a really perfect sort of intersection of so many of these ideas about domesticity and queerness and comfort and relationship and also mm-hmm. like fear and isolation and control and, you know, houses have doors that lock and they have windows that open and that let light in and like both those things are true. And so I don't know. The house is just sort of the perfect space. I realized at some point that just had to be, that had to be the focus of the book or it had to be mm-hmm. sort of the living dominant metaphor of the book. Do you consider a house a liminal space? It's somewhere that you return to, but you're not always there. Yeah, I would consider a house a liminal space. I think especially houses where like people pass through, they're fixed and people move through them. And there's something about them that's so eerie and strange even houses mm-hmm. that don't have like a weird energy or whatever have you ever been to a house that you believe to be haunted oh great <laughs> question i don't really believe in hauntings like real life hauntings i mean i, I think that it's probably safe to be haunted in a sort of more loose and metaphorical sense i don't really believe in ghosts so i guess the answer is no though i really wish that could be true i wish ghosts could be a thing <laughs> I agree. I think that would add an interesting layer to our universe. Yeah. When we're thinking about the generations that are growing up now in this world that can feel kind of chaotic and unpredictable, what do you think our response should be as artists, or as writers, in heralding future generations? Oh my God, that is a really big question. I think you can show what is possible. You can push open all the doors you possibly can and then just get out of their way. I think a thing that happens when artists exist in a sort of tradition and they're coming from like a marginalized space, like a queer identity, there's this tendency to feel sort of defensive about like younger generations. And I think there's a weird tension between the older generations of queers and younger generations of queers. And I feel like it's sort of hard. It's like we all need to be kinder to each other. And that's just generally true in the world. I feel like it's sort of about like creating spaces and creating opportunities and you know, acknowledging your own insufficiencies and the ways in which you know, you're doing our thing with our generation. But like there's a one that's coming and they're you know, doing things differently than we do and we need to mm-hmm. listen to them. I feel like there's so much to be said. And also like in part, you know, you have a space to like impart your wisdom and like what you've learned sort of from your experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess choosing what to pass down is important. I learn a lot about people's experiences via social media and such. I feel like that's a huge platform for change, honestly. What's your relationship with social media like? <laughs> you know, I I think that people should only use social media that they like, that they enjoy. I really like Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I also used to like Twitter and I'm still on Twitter and I'm beginning to slowly be like, you know, I should not be on Twitter mm-hmm. anymore. Twitter is very stressful and I feel like the structure of it does not reward good conversations and it frustrates me. So I don't know. I yeah. don't know. But I, I, yeah, I like it fine. It, it, it creates certain pleasures. I like talking to folks. I mean, I used to mm-hmm. be on live journal very publicly back in the day. I always liked like engaging with strangers and like talking about stuff that interested me and that concerned me. And like, that was always a good space for me and I enjoy it. But I do feel like, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's difficult on people and it's, 
and because I just sometimes find myself just reading a Twitter and like my eyes are all so far back in my head. It's like you can't even see it <laughs> anymore. I feel like people advocate for Twitter, at least in my like literary circles, as a tool for networking and. Oh, God, no way. No, 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 no. You do not, no one needs to be on Twitter. Twitter is bad. I mean, the world would be vastly improved if Twitter just simply <laughs> vanished. It would make so many things so much easier. And I think would just be better for the general health of, like, the world. But it has its uses. You just have to decide if they're worth it, I guess. This was a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Sorella Lark with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Gabriela Garcia-Stolfi. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.